All right. Hey, I'm Glenn Barnes, uh, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. We're going to open up God's Word together. Um, hey, as you came in, hopefully you received some message notes. Uh, we'll be working our way through those. Um, also, if you were here at the beginning um, and saw Steve Steele almost pull a muscle getting through nine announcements in 60 seconds, noble effort there, we probably should have mentioned to him. We also have a printed sheet in the back with all that information available. And so uh, first Sunday of the month, we're always going to have kind of all the announcements for the month. Uh, listed out. So grab one of those um, before you uh, head out. But again, it's great to be together um, here on this first day of August. And today we are continuing in this summer series uh, that we began a few weeks ago. And this series is called We Still Believe. So our theme for the whole year is We Believe. And the concept behind this we've been saying all year is that not only would we be people that know what we believe, but also that we would be, we believe, kind of people that have the faith to live those kind of things out. Uh, So we've been in this series called We Still Believe, and we are looking at six kind of historic uh, truths or historic parts of historic Christianity that for one reason or another uh, find themselves kind of under attack or under question um, in the days in which we live. And so we started off by talking about we still believe that Jesus is the only way. Uh, Then we talked after that about we still believe that all life is valuable. Remember we said that from the womb to the tomb, all life is created in God's image and is valuable. Uh, Last week, we threw Steve Steele a softball and uh, he gave him the easy topic. Uh, He did a great job uh, with we still believe that sex is sacred. Um, And today we want to look at this message. We still believe that, uh, we still believe that racism is wrong. And what we want to do is we want to look at what the Bible says about this hot button issue of race, or at least some of what the Bible says. You can't get to all of it in one day. Now, unfortunately, I know in some ways in the climate that we live in these days, um, that though it probably shouldn't be, this is a a topic that in some ways is like a no-win proposition for me, right? Because I can tell you that there will be people on both sides of the issue that will probably not be happy with the, you know, the way things um, go. Uh, There will be some who would say that, you know, racism is the preeminent issue, the most important issue um, in our nation, in our world these days. It is the deepest sin of the church. And so we should be talking about racism and racial issues all day and every day. On the other side, you would have some people who would say, I don't even know why the church is talking about this issue. Uh, uh, Talk about race just seems to stir things up and make it worse. You know, we should be totally talking about issues like law enforcement and some of those kind of things. Um, And so I understand um, that I am setting myself up to be judged on both sides. And those of you that know me know that that is not a place that I love to be or relish to be. Uh, That's okay, uh, because as preachers and teachers of this church, we just need to say this if not to you, to me on occasion, uh, as preachers and teachers of this church, our ultimate responsibility is not to any group of people on one side. Our ultimate responsibility is to Christ our King. That's why we sang all these King Jesus songs this morning. And our authority should never be, the authority of a, of a preacher or teacher in this church should never be our own opinion, should never be our own experience, our 
or circumstances. Those can inform the issue, but our ultimate authority and our ultimate truth comes from the Word of God. And that's the today um, and every day. And so that's kind of our goal for the day. In fact, I'm kind of reminded of this amazing example um, that Jesus sets for the, us on this issue. There's this time, uh, you read about it in John chapter 4, where Jesus had been doing some of his ministry down in the southern part of Israel, around Jerusalem and uh, the Judean wilderness. And after doing some ministry there, uh, he decided that it was time to go back up north to the northern part of Israel, um, around Galilee, where he was from. And so what we read in John chapter 4 is this. It says that Jesus, uh, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee from the south to the north. Now he had to go through Samaria. If I could be so bold as to say, this is one of the times when what the Bible says isn't 100% true. You see, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. Jesus chose to go through Samaria. In fact, it was very common for most Jewish religious leaders, especially, who kind of wanted to avoid controversy, who wanted to avoid ruffling feathers, they wouldn't step foot in Samaria. In fact, if you look at this map, and I don't know if you can see it clearly, but if you look at this map, the red line up the middle there, that is the shortest route, and that would take you through Samaria. But it was also very common for especially a religious person, a Jewish religious leader, to rather than go into Samaria, they would go east across the Jordan River, north, and then come back in by the Sea of Galilee. Or they might go all the way west out to the Mediterranean so that they would never have to step foot or cross paths with those people right, with those Samaritans. You see, there was a lot of hatred between Jews and Samaritans, right? They saw each other through an us versus them kind of, of lens. For, for Jews, Samaritans represented kind of this mixed race of people. It dates back to around 700 uh, BC when Assyrians conquered uh, Israel and or conquered uh, the northern kingdom and also uh, intermarried and created this kind of new race of people. And so now, 700 years later, they looked a little different. They probably talked a little bit different. Their culture was a little bit different. But what we saw is this tension between Jews and Gentiles in the time, or between Jews and Samaritans in the time of Jesus was, was getting worse. It wasn't getting better. But Jesus, who would eventually encounter this five-time divorced woman in Samaria, that's what he does. He goes in and he encounters this woman, this Samaritan woman that nobody saw, ultimately becomes one of Jesus' greatest um, missionaries. But what we see in this is that Jesus had to go through Samaria because of his mission. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria because of the geography You see, he could have taken the easier route out around the Jordan. He could have avoided criticism. Jesus could have maintained the status quo. But the status quo of racial racial division and hatred was not okay with Jesus, who made all people in his image. So he had to go through Samaria to show his love for all people uh, that were made in his image. And it's interesting that Jesus is always doing stuff like this. In fact, if you read another time, there's a time when Jesus heals 10 lepers. And he heals these 10 lepers, but only one of the 10 comes back and actually says thank you to Jesus for this. And if you remember the story, the one that comes back is a Samaritan. 
Or you have another time when Jesus tells a story and he's trying to teach us what our, who our neighbor is. And he tells this story about this man who's beaten and robbed and thrown into a ditch. And all of these people walk by, they walk by, they walk by, except for one person. There's only one person that stops and helps the guy. He's the hero of the story and he is a Samaritan right? And then Jesus comes to the end of his life and he gets ready to tell his disciples, hey, this is what you're going to do now that I'll be, you know, not with you present here on earth. Uh, So what I want you to do is I want you to wait here for the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says to him this, he says, then you'll be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes, it is on and you're going to take the gospel and you're going to take it first to people that might look and sound like you here in Jerusalem, but then you're going to take it to Judea, Judea and Samaria, to those people that are different than you. And ultimately, you're going to take it to the ends of the earth. And then the very first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see the very first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit starts to empower people to share the good news of Jesus with people in all kinds of different languages and all kinds of different cultures and races are reached at one time through this message made available to them by God. And it's almost as if like the division that began at the Tower of Babel starts to be torn down uh, by the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but when I read those kind of things and I hear those kind of things, I I get really excited about this idea of the power of the gospel to make a difference in all cultures. And and I start to to wonder uh, because I I, I see that Jesus... um, was never saying that, uh, Jesus was never saying for him that it was about different races. For Jesus, it was about one race, the human race. And we see, modern science tells us that all people everywhere are remarkably similar. Over 99% uh, the same by God's design. And as I said, I don't know about you, but when I think of the implications of that, I, I kind of get excited. I kind of get encouraged to think, that maybe, just maybe, this is the generation that can begin to slay some of those demons of racism that have plagued our world for so long. In fact, when I read those things and I get kind of excited, it's kind of a, a similar feeling or kind of an encouraged, maybe a warm kind of feeling. It's the same kind of feeling I get when I watch a little video like this. I don't know if you've seen this before. You guys seen this? They hadn't seen each other for a while. It had been a COVID thing. But look at those best friends, and off they go to love and to live life together. And I don't know about you, but when I see that, you know, it's just so warm and, and inside, and, and you think, you know, isn't that it? That's a, that's a part of, of Martin Luther King's um, dream right there. Uh, I mean, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is such a, a beautiful thing that we see here, and uh, we know that we've made great strides in this area, and yet we also know that as warm and as fuzzy as this case is, it's not the case for all people everywhere or for everyone. For many different reasons, racial tension remains high in our nation and all around the world. Uh, our world is very divided. And while Christians have made great advances in this area, Christians have, have come, I believe, a, a long way in this area, it's hard to dispute that Sunday morning continues to be one of the most segregated hours across our nation. And that ain't right, right? Racism 
is wrong. In fact, racism is a sin against God and against those that he has created. And so I want to just be clear, today's message is not a political one. It seems like everything is political these days. Everything is heated. Today's message is not a, a political one. It's, it's about individual responsibility. It's about individual growth. And it's about what does it look like for maybe even a church like ours to begin to bring um, some healing and to bring a new level of unity um, in the church. I also understand that one sermon um, is hardly a way to even scratch the surface on an issue that is very um, multifaceted. There's a lot uh, to this issues. But what I want to do today um, for our time together is I want to look at one, what I think is a very important passage. And it's a passage where we see that one of Jesus's, you know, key followers, one of his key um, believers, someone who'd walked with him for a long time, uh, has some, some change and some growth in this area. And it paves the le- way for a new level of intimacy and our new level of unity in the, the church. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to spend uh, the vast majority of our time, where we see the apostle Peter the Apostle Peter. And if you remember, Peter is someone who for years before this had been walking with Jesus literally in person. Jesus had gone through Samaria with Jesus. Uh, Peter had seen, you know, all of the teachings, all of the healings of, of Jesus. He'd experienced a lot of transformation in his life. Peter had, you know, eaten a meal with the resurrected Jesus. He'd seen a lot. And yet Peter, even through all that, still has a conversion that needs to take place in his life in certain areas, including um, this one. So Acts chapter 10, we're going to pick up the story in verse 24. There's actually a ton of, of background, um, but suffice it to say, the background that we need to know that is that until this time that we're going to read uh, the story in Acts 10, 24, the, the, the early church remained almost exclusively, except for a few exceptions here and there, almost exclusively one race of people, the Jewish uh, people. But God, just before this, gives a Gentile man by the name of Cornelius and then the apostle Peter simultaneous visions that it's time for those barriers and those walls to come down. So Acts uh, 10, 24, and the story goes like this. The following day, he, talking about Peter, arrived in Caesarea. Now Cornelius, who, remember, was a Gentile, so a different race than Peter, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together all his relatives and his close friends. So Cornelius got all his Gentile friends together and Peter comes to visit. In verse 25, it says, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up and said, stand up. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found this large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. And suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer, uh, prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. So send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded to you. In other words, we're all here, Peter, just waiting to hear what you have to say. And so Peter began to speak and this is what he says. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation from every nation, the one who fears him and does what 
is right. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just use that text as kind of our example, and I want to see um, kind of the way that Peter begins to overcome some of the racial prejudice in his life, and what we're going to see is actually four steps towards racial reconciliation that I find um, right here in this passage. And so the first thing, uh, the first step that Peter takes uh, in moving towards racial reconciliation is he acknowledges that there is a problem. Notice Peter just admits it. Look at verse 28. He gets very honest, and this is, what, this is what he says. He says, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. So in other words, he just calls it out. He says, hey, I'm in this house. This is really different than what I've been a part of before. This is different than what I've been taught before. Uh, but it seems like God is doing something new. So Peter just acknowledges that there is this problem. Uh, I love the way the, uh, the message translation uh, translates this. It says, it says, you know, I'm sure that this is highly irregular. Jews just don't do this. Visit and relax with people of another race. But God has shown me that no one race is better than any other. That's the way the message paraphrases that. And so this is a big step for Peter to admit that his own tradition has racial bias in it. Now, I get it. This is a very contentious point in the world that we live in today. Nobody, nobody likes to be told that they have bias. Nobody likes to be told about sinful actions or thoughts. And I think a lot of us might be feeling that this day, these days feeling like everybody's saying that, that, that you're wrong or pointing out all of these problems. Now, to be fair, there are some popular opinions and some popular theories in our culture today that we're not going to get into a lot of that today um, that say that everything is, in fact, racist and that, um, you know, every problem uh, really is an, an issue of race and one group oppressing and opposing another uh, group. And while I personally don't believe uh, or do believe that something like critical race theory is an example of that, um, is based on a very false and a, a dangerous uh, narrative that actually creates more problems and, and potentially even more racial division, more racial div- division than it does healing. And yet I also want to say that this is very important, especially for a person who comes from a majority culture in their, uh, in their culture. It's important to be able to say, while I may disagree or find fault with those most extreme or those most radical positions, that doesn't mean that we just use as, as an excuse to never take a look at our life. And never say, well, because I disagree with those extreme positions, maybe there's nothing in my life that needs to take a look at. And so it's important that we would ask those questions. Are there things in me that I need to look at? Are there inequities in our community that I need to be aware of? Are there opportunities that I have had that seem natural and normal to me, but maybe aren't available at the same way to to all people because of maybe social class or, or income or race or whatever it is? And as a follower of Christ... We should be aware and want to be aware of what's going on with people. It's also okay to follow the example of Peter and admit that there are problems, even as you think about kind of the big C church. I'm not talking about this church, but I'm talking about the church universal. Um, the, The big C church is far from exempt in this area. 
in the mid-1800s when there were still four million slaves um, in the United States. There were certainly many, many strong Christian churches and Christian people that led the way uh, bravely um, for uh, abolitionist movement and those kind of things. But there were also many churches and even whole denominations who used the Bible to defend slavery and to preach sermons in favor of slavery. Around the time that Abraham Lincoln boldly signed the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, abolitionist Frederick Douglass said this. He said, there is no place that slavery finds a more secure abode than under the shadow of the sanctuary. Now, if you're like me, a lot of us think, well, hey, that's ancient history. You know, that's 160, that's 170 years ago. Um, That's terrible stuff. But I I don't have anything to do with that. That's not me. That's not my um, time. And I understand that. And I um, agree with that. But it's also easy to see that the church throughout history doesn't necessarily have a sterling record in leading the way on these kind of issues. This was brought to uh, kind of a, a, a troubling Uh, brought to my attention in kind of a troubling way um, a little over a year ago. And it was when we as a church were starting to look for a new high school pastor. And so this was before we found, uh, God led us to, uh, Pastor Stephen Rossi, who's doing an amazing job. But there was that period where we were, where I was talking to a lot of uh, different people. And there was a, a young man, um, who I'd known for years that actually I sought out because I knew he was a great guy, um, knew he was, um, doing a great job in ministry. He'd actually, he, he grew up at least part of his time here in this area kind of his young uh, childhood and early teens. He lived in this area and was a part of this church. Happened to be African-American guy. And um, so I called him, and as much as I tried to get him to consider um, coming to Lodi, he was in a a great church in another city, was very happy there. So he, you know, ended up, that ended up not happening. But during this process, I listened to and had conversations with him, and I listened to some of the, the, the messages that he was giving at his church. And one of the messages, he was actually interviewed in a very large church in Southern California um, on this issue of race. And he told um, some stories. And I should qualify this by saying he is a very positive person. He is not extreme. He is not bitter or any of those things. And yet he told some stories of growing up specifically as the only or one of the few uh, black middle school students in a predominantly white church um, in the Central Valley. And he told told what I would say are just some horrible stories of some of the, not only the verbal um, things that happened and some of the, just the discriminatory and hateful things that were said to him, but even some physical um, stuff, some physical bullying that was done to him. And he told these stories about this church. And I, I couldn't sleep quite honestly. I'm like, oh Lord. Now, turns out that was not at First Baptist Church of Lodi. Um, Hallelujah. (laughs) Not that it makes it any better. Um, It was at another church in another city in our area. It wasn't around here. But as I debriefed that issue with him and talked about even his time here at First Baptist, he had great things to say about his time in the youth group, about the people. But he said, you know, even then, you know, it was hard growing up in a place where I felt like I was different and there were little looks and there were little things said and there were things that said that were insensitive that actually tended to, to push me away rather than invite me in to the family of God. And so we hear those things and we think, that's not 160 years ago. That's this generation. It reminds me of, a, of another time. You remember Gandhi. 
Gandhi, who as a young Hindu man, was, became very interested in Christianity. And he was especially interested in the, the teachings of Christ. And so he spent a lot of time studying the, the teachings of Christ. Um, and he thought that maybe, just maybe, that Christianity and the teachings of Christ would be the thing that could overcome the caste system in India. If you know anything about the caste system in India, it's based on this horrible racial system. And it's, it's a good reminder that racism is not an American problem. Racism is not a black and white or brown problem. Racism is a sin problem, right? Every culture has it in, in, in one thing. We shouldn't be surprised by this. When sinful people set up systems, there's no surprise that there's going to be sin in those systems. And, and you see this terribly in the caste system in India. But Gandhi became very hopeful that, that maybe the teachings of Christ could help make a difference in this nation that now is over a billion people. And so Gandhi says, um, I think I'm going to go to church. And he goes to church, and maybe you've heard this story before. Uh, Gandhi comes to the church, and he's met by an usher who tells him this. He says, you need to find a place to go worship with your own kind. And Gandhi says, at that day, he says this, if Christians also have a caste system, then I might as well remain a Hindu. And that is what he did for the rest of his life. So it's important for us to just be able to acknowledge, like Peter did in Acts chapter 10, and acknowledge that there remains racial discrimination in our world, all around the world. Racism is real, racism is wrong, and there are times when we need to repent if necessary. So that's the first step. The second thing that we see in that passage is not only does he acknowledge that there's a problem, but he accepts God's redirection. He accepts God's redirection. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says this, but God, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That's Acts 10, 29. And if you're like me, you might want to circle that phrase or highlight that phrase, but God. I don't know about you, but I love those but God moments. You know, I was going one way, but God came along and he redirected me another path. Things looked hopeless or desperate in my life. Things looked hopeless or desperate in this situation. But God came along and he redirected and he brings things to, that are broken to repair. Uh, the things that looked beyond uh, help. But God restores all things. And so Peter was open to the divine revelation of God on this issue. And but God, it says, so because uh, of that, Peter was open to that, that kind of but God moment. He accepts God's redirection. And it leads him specifically to action. The first action is that he goes from where he was in Joppa up to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius because God was directing him to a new thing. So that's step two. He accepts God's redirection. The third thing that we see is Peter is willing to invite a conversation. He invites a conversation. Here Peter walks into Cornelius' house and all of his Gentile friends and family are there and Peter, who we know loved to, you know, act first and listen second. Peter was not known for his patience. Peter was not known for his listening skills in any way. And yet we see that Peter does something very wise at this point. You, you see the work of Christ in Peter's life here. He comes into this place and he asks the question, and then it appears that he just is quiet and he listens. He says, Peter, or he says Cornelius, why did you send me? Why did you send for me? Tell me your story. Let me try to understand what's going on. Make me try to feel what you feel. Are there ways that I need to mourn as you mourn? Are there ways that I could rejoice as you rejoice? 
It reminds me of uh, perhaps my all-time favorite uh, character in American literature, Atticus Finch. And Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird famously tells uh, young scout, he says, you never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view. And then he says, until you climb in their skin and walk around in it a bit. So he invites this conversation. He says, try to help me understand these things. You know, hey, I love this story, and uh, maybe you've seen it before. This is a picture of a woman by the name of Wanda uh, Dench. Wanda is a grandma um, and just a great person. And um, Wanda, like a lot of grandmas, sometimes struggles with technology, right? You know that sometimes that happens. And so Wanda, uh, it's coming up to Thanksgiving, and so she decides that she's going to send a text message to her grandson, making sure that the grandson remembers that Thanksgiving is at her house. And so she sends off this little text message. Hey, just a reminder, Thanksgiving is at my house. Can't wait to see you on Thanksgiving. See you then. Now, Wanda, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, actually sent that text message to the wrong person. So the text message didn't go to her grandson. Her text message went to this guy, a man by the name of Jamal Hinton. Uh, I can tell that some of you have picked up that that's probably not her birth grandson there. And so Jamal and her start to kind of text back and forth. Um, and it ends with Jamal saying this, well, hey, can I at least get a plate of that Thanksgiving dinner? And Wanda says, yes, I'd love it if you came to Thanksgiving dinner. And so she invites him to come to Thanksgiving dinner. And that was in 2015. Since 2015, Wanda and uh, Jamal have enjoyed Thanksgiving dinner together every year since that time. In fact, it went on that Wanda and her husband Lonnie there in the back and Jamal and his girlfriend all eat together. And this friendship was built and, and they, they, began this, this great relationship, which started as an accident, turned out to be this beautiful thing as they listened and they learned from one another. Here's the rest of the story. I don't know if you know, but this past year, Wanda's husband, Lonnie, passed away. And can you imagine that first Thanksgiving dinner when her husband is gone? Who shows up at the door? Jamal shows up at the door. And they cry together and they remember together and they struggle together, and they they laugh together. Why it's such a beautiful picture of this unity? Because they took time to listen to each other. They took time to get to know one another. They're very different. When you hear them talk, they acknowledge we're from very uh, different places, but we have grown to love and appreciate one another. And you know, again, especially if you're from a, a majority culture, right, if you're from the, the majority culture, um, it's so important that we do what Peter did, and we invite conversation. And we say, tell me your story. Help me understand. Help, help me understand how you feel, what you think, those kind of things. And, and that's what Jesus's people do. They listen to people. They invite those kind of conversations. In fact, check this out. I got to show you this uh, little teaching video um, from the Village Church in Dallas. And this is just one of their uh, little teachings. There's the uh, QR code in your notes. It's got kind of a whole number of different things from this church in Dallas. Um, And this is called Use the Kitchen Table to Teach Your Kids About Diversity. And this has got some audio to it. So there it is. Oh, go ahead, Robin. One of the best ways that we can teach our kids about the beauty of diversity is at our kitchen table. If you have a diverse community, having people in your home 
that look different than you is an incredible, tangible way to show our kids that it is a beautiful thing that God created the world and that he created people made in his image to reflect his glory all so different. So I think that is one way. But if you don't have a diverse um, community around you, and so it's difficult to invite people who are not like you um, into your home, as in racially not like you and ethnically, you can still expose them to different cultures, to different food, to different history, and celebrate it. I think one of the things that is a detriment to us and to kids is that we always and often approach race or ethnicity or differences or diversity in the negative. It's typically about um, racism, which is important, we need to talk about that, or it's typically about our very difficult history, incredibly important, we must talk, we must talk about that. But often we're not celebrating. We're not enjoying, we're not delighting in God, what God has done in creating people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all different, and all these different cultures. So one way that we can really encourage diversity and teaching our kids is to celebrate it, to enjoy it, to delight in it, so that they know that it is a good thing. It's God's idea. And I love that for, for parents. That is a great reminder about teaching your kids. But I love her approach to say, you know, we always approach these issues of race. And, and I know I'm guilty of this sometimes from a, a heavy and, a, and a, a negative standpoint, rather than looking at the beautiful diversity that God has made, right? And that that's God's image in all kinds of people and to celebrate and to embrace that. And that's what we see Peter and Cornelius begin to do in this friendship. He invites a conversation with him and then that leads him to the very uh, last thing that we see, the last step very quickly is he renounces discrimination and he begins to work for this positive sense of unity. Peter renounces discrimination and begins to work for unity. We're up to verses 34 and 35 that say this. Then Peter began to speak and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, uh, from every nation, the one that fears him and does what is right. Every New Testament scholar will tell you that Acts chapter 10, this little passage that we just read here, is a significant, it's hard to overstate the significance of the turning point that takes place in, in what we just read. The significant turning point that it takes place in Peter's life, but the significant turning point that it takes place not just in the story of the book of Acts as the gospel spreads around the world, but a turning point in the life of the church. You see, because of Peter's declaration that we just read there, that God does not show favoritism. Because of Peter's declaration in Acts chapter 10, when you turn the page and you get to Acts chapter 11, you see this whole new thing is happening. And there's a church in the city of Antioch. And for the first time, you read of Jews and Gentiles worshiping side by side and on mission side by side with one another. And it all starts because Peter and Cornelius were willing to do what God Ask them to do and step out and say, is there something new? 
You, you see this, I could probably go through a half dozen examples of this, you see it in scripture, uh, but just one example that maybe you'll relate to is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is kind of this famous passage where we read that we're saved by grace. It's not by faith that we're saved, we're saved by grace. It's super foundational for our Christian life. So you read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that. You keep reading the very next verses, what you see is Paul's argument goes like this. Because you have received grace... The next thing that happens is division in the church starts to fall. And he talks about this idea of this dividing wall that had separated people starting to come down and they're becoming one new person. And the foundation of that is the grace that people had received. In other words, when God is at work, the walls start to come down and they start to pursue unity. And perhaps my favorite picture of uh, a picture uh, on this issue um, goes back to something that Dane read at the very beginning of our service when we started to sing these songs about King Jesus. And it's Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, which says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And I want you to notice something there. They're in heaven, and cultural diversity and racial diversity hasn't gone away. It's still there. But now it's unified, and it's loving around the throne of King Jesus. You see, we said that racism is wrong and racism is a sin. Ultimately, this is a kingship of Jesus issue. Because where Jesus, and and on any sort of sin... What do we do? We bring that under the kingship of Jesus. And we say, Jesus, transform my life. Help me to have your heart and your mission in all things. That's why as we wrap up this sermon, I know there's much more that could be done and said on this issue. I think it's especially important um, that we celebrate communion together today. And so hopefully when you came in, I should have mentioned this earlier, hopefully you received one of these little um, communion packets. If not, uh, some of our ushers are coming around. They would love to make sure um, that you get one. And the way this works, if you haven't done this before, is on the, the, I guess that'd be the bottom of it, um, is the bread. And you might want to just take that out um, right now. Because we're reminded on communion uh, that Jesus, who had taken his disciples with him through Samaria, Jesus, who had taught and shown his love to all people, gathers together with his disciples in the upper room. And he's getting ready to send them out to change the world. And it's the Passover meal. And so he takes the cup. and I'm sorry, he takes the bread. And after giving thanks, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, something new is happening here. He says, this now is my body given for you. So whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And it will remind you of the grace that you have received. And it will also be something to remind you to tear down barriers. One of the things that the Apostle Paul talks about when he talks about communion is that we would take it in a worthy manner. Rightfully, we approach that and say, hey, we need to kind of check ourselves and, you know, whether there's all kinds of different sin issues and, and Lord, we want to take this with a clean heart and in a worthy manner. But ultimately, what Paul is talking about when he's talking about a worthy manner, he says the unworthy manner is when there's division in the church. And so he says, make sure that you check yourself, that you, you know, you look at those things, that you are right with God and you are right with people. And so in the quiet of this moment, I invite you to do that. And as the family of God, full of love and unity around our Savior and our King Jesus Christ, let's eat together the bread in remembrance of him. And in the same way, Jesus peeled a little seal off the top of the cup. 
That's not two. I made that up. In the same way, Jesus did take the cup. And he says, this is the blood of a new covenant, a new covenant that makes mankind right with God through my grace and my forgiveness. And in that is the reminder that when people are right with God, people are right with one another. And he says, this is my cup given for you. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together. Father, I thank you so much for the power of your gospel demonstrated to us through your giving of your life, laying down your life in humility so that we might live. So I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today that we would understand and that we would appreciate the power of your grace and the beauty of your sacrifice, the power of the cross, and that we would lay our lives before King Jesus, Lord of all. I pray for our church that we would be a place of healing love and light in this community and in this world and that our hearts would be filled with the gratitude that can come only from giving our lives to you and I pray this in Jesus name Amen